Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 13th, 2015. It's a Tuesday, and the show I have lined up for you today is, if, the, if you don't like the world, wait a minute, it will change. It came uh, as an inspiration from a Facebook post what you wanted today's show to be about, so this show did not exist in my head until about 45 minutes ago. There were so many suggestions on Facebook, I have a list of shows to put together for you now that goes, seems to go on for, well, about pretty much the rest of 2015, but Xavier Hawk suggested a big picture show on the coming shifts and how modern survivalism can help us adapt to them. That's the one that kind of resonated with me this morning, so... Everything you're about to hear today was created in, well, the last 45 minutes, so we'll see how that goes. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors will help you to complete that final third part of the triangle of gun operator efficiency, as I call it. Uh, the first part is the gun. You have to have an effective weapon. Two, the ammo. You can buy those off the shelf. They are what they are. The final moving part, though, is you, the operator. You need high-quality training, and Frank Sharp Jr. and Fortress Defense Consultants are the place to get it. Learn more at FortressDefense.com. Next up, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Well, water filtration systems. Berkey water filtration systems, of course. Seriously, though, Jeff has a lot of great things for your prepping needs, but he is known as the Berkey Guy for a reason. He is one of the top dealers for Berkey in the world, not the country, the world. That means you're going to get great pricing, and you're also going to get great service from a customer service fanatical maniac himself, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. And if you're going to get a Berkey or filters for your Berkey or parts for your Berkey, don't go to the non-Berkey guy at the gun show that started selling Berkeys last week because he heard that prepping was a good niche. Go to the original himself, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, and his website, directive21.com. That is the word directive, followed by the numbers 2 and 1, a dot in a com. Remember, Fortress Defense Consultants, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, do a lot to help support this show. So when you're looking for firearms training or water purification or other prepping needs, do consider checking them out before you use someone that doesn't support the show. Just saying. Uh, next up on supporting the show, hey, do you know how you can support this show? Become a member of my Member Support Brigade, and I'll get you discounts to over 60 vendors that you can't get anywhere else. On things you're probably buying anyway, and if you're buying stuff from guns to gardens and everything in between, your membership will pay for itself, and you support the show. I consider that a big win-win. You'll also get content that's available nowhere else, and hey, you'll be part of the brigade itself, the Member Support Brigade. If you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, do consider joining. That's what the numbers come out to. Remember, you can join for a month or a quarter or half a year if you want to do that. So you can become a member today for as little as 5 bucks a month if you want to do that. However, if you join for a year, it's 50 bucks. That works out to a discount. On the discounts, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Email me and tell me in one or two sentences about your service, either present service or prior service, both qualify, and I'll send you a discount code. Just do that before, not after you join. I can't go back and change it once you've joined. It's very, it just doesn't work. I'll just leave it at that. 
And you guys are supposed to be procedural in all of those realms, so that's the procedure before, not after you join. Anyway, uh, with that, let us take a look now at the year that was the episode. The year's 1498. We have the Portuguese reach the real India. The first Italian war ends with a crack. Christopher Columbus's third voyage goes badly. I'm going to read Portuguese reach the real India. The king of Portugal has chosen Vasco da Gama to sail to India to set up merchant connections and establish a colony. By the time Vasco rounds the African Cape, his crew is dying of scurvy, a disease caused by a deficiency of vitamin C. The Portuguese know the cure for this is to eat citrus fruits, so they've been planting trees along their coastal route, but there are no Portuguese ports along the east coast of Africa yet. They stop for a month in Mozambique for repairs and to recover from illness. They offer gifts to the local sultan, but the gifts are not well received. The Muslim merchants realize there's some real competition has arrived. The sultan chases them out, but by the time they reach Kenya, they find a pilot that can lead them to India. They have left Lisbon on July 8, 1497, and arrive in Calcutta, India on May 20, 1498, which is just short of 11 months. With better coastal support, they can shorten that trip considerably. In a few years, Mozambique will become a major Portuguese trading port, just as the merchants feared. With this voyage, the Portuguese have turned the old land route trading relationships on their heads, creating a new route to Europe and colonizing the coasts of Africa, India, China, and the East Indies. My take by Alex Shrugged. It's difficult to know why Vasco da Gama was chosen for this voyage, other than he distinguished himself in a recent battle. He seemed to lack a talent for negotiating trade deals, though he managed it anyway. This may speak more to the entrepreneurial intuition of the merchants of India and the East African coast than to Vasco's persuasiveness. In any case, his journey will also open up the East Indies to the Americas. In the years to come, merchant sailors will realize that China is anxious for silver, too. With this new route and some book, simple bookkeeping, these merchant sailors, sometimes known as pirates, but not, let's not be so crass, can deliver silver uh, from the Americas to the hands of the Chinese, the European masters will be none the wiser. My take by Jack Spierko, but there's a lot to learn from this. This may seem like a flat scientific or uh, historical fact of just like this is how this happened, but first of all, you see that silver becomes something that the pirates pirate from the Americas, where there's lots of new silver to be found, all the way to China. And they do so without their government masters knowing this. Why? Because you can carry a lot of wealth in a small package. That's one of the reasons we invest in precious metals. That's one thing right there. The next thing, uh, this, you know, 11 months to get there, it, all in all, it's pretty much a failure. As If that was going to be the way it was going forward, that does not make for a valid trade route. The fact that it was proven that it could be done... Things were identified along the way. The first pass was kind of miserable. They almost died. They almost got killed, etc. But now they know where to go, what to do, and how to improve it. So a lot of times, when you're the pioneer, the guy with the arrows in your back, by the way, uh, your first time through doesn't work out really well. It's really easy for people to look at you from a distance and say, that guy sucks. Well, they haven't, in an old Indian proverb, walked a mile in your moccasins yet, and they don't really understand that sometimes initial failure in appearance is actually initial success in long-term planning. That fits well with today's show on coming shifts. It also fits well when people are establishing things like permaculture farms, and in the first year they've invested a lot of money, put in a lot of effort, and a lot of lots coming out the other end yet. And people go, see, it doesn't work. You should have grown corn. 
Takes trees time to grow, fool. Just saying. The next thing is that government can never fully control a market. There were people that wanted to do business with each other, and they found a way to do business with each other, in spite of the fact that the government said you can't do business that way. They call that a black market, but you know what it really is? It's a free market. I'm just saying. My take by Jack Spierko. So let's take a look. It's Tuesday, so we have Bob Wells' plant of the week. I have a cool backstory on this plant and why you might want it on your property as you prepare for shifts going forward. Uh, but Bob Wells' plant of the week this week is the Blenheim apricot. The Blenheim apricot is a highly adaptable apricot from zones 5 to 9. So those of you in cool climates that thought you were too cool to grow an apricot, you're not too cool. Uh, you can actually grow an apricot zone 5. It is the most popular apricot in the United States, sort of. It's considered to be the most flavorful, best-tasting apricot in production. The medium to large yellow-skinned with orange blush apricot has superb flavor. The Blenheim apricot tree ripens in late June to early July. It's self-fruitful. Needs an estimating chilling uh, hours of four to five hundred chilling hours. You can find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. BobWells Nursery specializes in anything edible, fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as other hard-to-find specialty trees. When I heard it was the Blenheim apricot, I thought to myself, didn't I hear some stuff going on about that uh, in, in the past few years? And it was all the way back to 2008. There was an article that somehow was sticking in my head. I was able to find at California Bountiful. And it's the disappearing delicacy. The beloved Blenheim apricot is vanishing. With a color reminiscent of rose-hued sunset, sublime honey-like flavor, royal roots, and rave reviews, the Blenheim apricot has a lot going for it. It's also disappearing from California's bountiful orchards. Blenheims were grown in Europe for nearly 200 years and flourished in the garden at Blenheim Palace in England, birthplace of Sir Winston Churchill. They arrived in California in the 1880s, and production spiked during the World War I era after a stoppage of imported dried fruit from Europe. The largest farming areas for the variety were Sacramento and Santa Clara Valleys. Experts say urban growth and lower-priced imported fruit from Turkey are big reasons the California Blenheim is on the decline. The 32,000 tons of Blenheims produced in 1988 dropped to 4,000 tons in 2007, according to Bill Ferrer, president of the apricot producers of California and other industry data. Ferrer said Blenheims account for less than 2% of overall production and the numbers expected to dwindle further as more trees soon become uprooted. And we all know what happened around this time. Like we had this big drought. And almond and apricot growers throughout California were like pulling trees out and shredding them to mulch and putting in solar farms. Yeah, so it's probably the case that it's declined even further than in this article. So you have a declining production heirloom that does well throughout most of the United States. That might be something you want to add and partake of uh, having something unique as a shift occurs, which leads us right into today's show. So again, this came from Xavier Hawk was the one with the suggestion on Facebook that I kind of locked on to. And again, this whole show, uh, if there's any holes in it, was created in 45 minutes. So hopefully uh, you guys will enjoy it anyway. Uh, but the title of today's show, again, is If You Don't Like the World, Wait a Minute and It Will Change. And it's, of course, a play on the statement, If You Don't Like the Weather in Blank, Wait a Minute and It Will Change. 
I always find it ironic when I visit a new place that many people that live there seem to think that saying is unique to where they live. When we moved to Pennsylvania, somebody told my wife that, you know, if you don't like the weather in Pennsylvania, wait a minute, it'll change. And she said to me later, do they really think that's something that they only say in Pennsylvania? And I said, they probably do. But the truth is that it's pretty universal in any temperate climate. And so is a shifting and changing world is pretty universal. The world today is far different than the world of the 1950s. We all accept that. But have you ever thought about how different the world of 2015 is even from the world of 1999, before Y2K, before 9-11, before the new war on terror, when people usually got on the Internet and heard the following, you've got mail. Remember that, when people got on the Internet and it sounded like this? Remember that day? That's... That's not that long ago. It's not even 20 years. And how much has changed since 1999? How many record stores, and I don't just mean records, I mean like CD stores exist anymore. There's a lot of shifts since 1999 alone. The key is the world is always changing, and it always will. And we have a tendency to think we are individually unique and special. You know, now is different. And to some degree that's true, and we are. Yet there are constants that connect all of us in both space and time within the human condition. You might think like the caveman, the paleo man, the pre-industrial man, the 19th century farmer, uh, the World War II generation, all of those people are really different from each other and that they're big, you know, heavily different from ourselves. In the end, though, the most overriding factors in their lives and our own are identical. There's ten things that I think bind, you know, bind human beings throughout time and space. The first innate quality that humans exhibit is a desire to survive. We all have that de desire. We express it as modern survivalists in the way that we design our lifestyles. But the most primitive organisms, and not just human beings, have a desire to survive. But as we move into the human world, we go from survive to nine more things that are Not completely unique to humanity, but fairly unique to humanity. The next one is to create security. Now, that gets a bad rap because government-provided security isn't necessarily the best type of security. And in the name of security, a lot of liberty is taken. But in the end, we as creatures do value security. We're more likely to build a house if we don't think it's going to burn down or be stolen from us. So many times the reason that government security is ill-received is it's not really security. It's false security. It's not that we don't want security in our lives. We don't want security at the expense of what's reasonable. We don't want security at the expense of our liberties, and we certainly don't want false security. But we do have a common desire, and we've always had a desire as humans, to know that what we do can be preserved for ourselves, for our children. And... The next thing that's common is adaptability. We adapt as necessary as a species. And people might say that people aren't very adaptable anymore. It's not true. We are innately human, and humans are innately adaptable. And we can see that simply through where we've survived and thrived. There is no single species that has survived in more parts of the world than human beings. Even insects cannot make the claim. There's no single species of insect that's been capable of surviving in as broad a space of climate, elevation, etc. as the human being. And you might even say, well, the cockroach can, but the cockroach can only live in some places that it lives today because there's humans there 
which to parasite off of. We are more adaptable in all reality than the ultimate survivor, the cockroach. So adaptability. Next is a questioning. We question things and we gain knowledge. We develop technologies. The most primitive humans that we know of in the Paleolithic record had fairly advanced technologies, far more advanced than anything the animal kingdom has ever come up with. The next thing is we want to be part of families. There is a value to the family unit to human beings. You might find the occasional hermit or what have you, but usually it's because something went bad wrong with the family. As beings, we seem to be happiest when we are part of a family. On top of that, we also want to belong to larger community or groups of communities. One of the biggest reasons that the Survival Podcast is successful is that we are, in fact, a community of communities. And we have sub-communities within the broader community. So there's a certain identification. You guys can't tell me that if you meet someone, if you're an avid listener, you listen regularly, and you meet someone that is also a listener to this show, you know, just in a random happenstance, that there's not an immediately some level of a kinship. That you, you will have a discussion not really just about TSP, but about your lives and how you have a common viewpoint. We are a community. That's why we're successful. And within our community, we have sub-communities, like the Zello Network, like the Forum. Okay, And those sub-communities also have value to people. And then we're part of larger communities, the, the prepper community. The awakened community. Right? I think most of the people listening to the show are at least on the verge of awakening from the major bullshit of society that keeps your eyes closed to reality. From just believing that the D or the R is the solution if we vote the right way. And you start to realize the state is the problem, not just the people within the state. So I, I think that there's this larger community here. But long before there were podcasts and virtual communities and things like that, there was always a village type of mindset among people that they understood that part of that number two pinpoint of security was having families that were cohesive and having those families grouped together in communities that created greater security, and that's tribalism. And all nations actually rose out of tribalism. Uh, the next one is innovate and profit. Now, profit can be a bad word, or it can also be a misunderstood word in the context in which I'm using it here. When I say profit, I don't just mean money. I mean that by adapting technologies, by innovating technologies, by being creative, we gain as individuals, as families, and communities. Human beings have always sought to profit. If we harvest food from nature and then we eat it through the winter, that's a form of a profit, not just selling it to somebody else for a profit monetarily that we've always sought to take things and make them more than the sum of their parts. That is, to truly profit, to create wealth, is not always about monetary wealth. It, it, Stephen Harris commented on one of the uh, things that I posted on the blog about casting aluminum, that when you cast metals, you're creating wealth because you're actually creating something. A very astute observation, and we have always sought as beings to create gain. And gain is not evil, gain is not bad. Gain is how we create survivability, security, adaptation, the opportunity to educate ourselves, how we preserve our family, preserve our communities without a return of surplus, right? 
without a profit, without something to make the investment worthwhile, the investment never happens. Next is to have a sense of purpose. It is one of the most universal things in human beings. And if you want to see what happens when people lose their sense of purpose, look at all the people supposedly clinically depressed with air quotes around it in the United States today. The majority of the people that are being medicated for the concept of depression are not depressed. They're sad because they have no idea what the hell they're supposed to be doing. They have no sense of purpose. And human beings have always found a sense of purpose. What's kept people on track to be able to be productive members of families and communities and societies? And you can see it really clearly when you look at some of the work that people do to help people once they get out of prison or jail. You might think that a person getting a job or having something to do for monetary gain when they get out of jail or prison reduces recidivism solely because since I have an income, I don't have a need to commit a crime. But if it was that simple, most of those people probably would have never been in jail in the first place because before you commit a crime, it's often much easier to get a job, find some opportunity, what have you. And... So the recidivism is often because the, per the person ends up feeling like no one wants me. There is no longer any opportunity for me. So the only thing I can do is to take or to steal or to rob or to use violence because I have no sense of purpose. But yet you can see people who were like hardcore criminals given responsibilities like taking care of dogs or working on a farm, things that are not considered very high-level employment, and you can actually see them turn their entire lives around. You can see the same type of work has been done with addicts before, where people have gone through all types of rehab, and they really can't get anywhere, but you have to ask, what's the underlying problem? What's the underlying condition? Why is this person a drug addict in the first place? And not always, but many times, it's because the person simply lacks a sense of purpose. And without a sense of purpose, you're like a ship without a rudder or a compass. You have no idea where you're going, no idea where you are, no how, idea how you got to where you are, and no idea of what you should be doing. So whatever is most comforting in the moment is the path that you take, or whatever leads you to the first tenant, which is survive. How can I survive? And the creation of individual security for yourself. Right? It doesn't mean that the behavior might not have inherent risk, but if it's pulled off, I will survive and I'll have security for today. Immediate gratification. And most abusive behaviors, especially self-abusive behaviors, are... In that vein, today, acting today, doing today, being today, okay? And that's a big part of not having a sense of purpose. Right in with that is it is universal for human beings to want to understand the past. There is not a culture without a story of its genesis, its origin, its creation. Not a single culture is absent a story of where they came from. That alone is enough to tell you that it's universal. And it's not just religious because many cultures have different religions and deep, different beliefs about their origins. And the most different often have commonalities. So there's, there's indigenous tribes in South America that believe that the gods created them from mud. And then in, in Christendom and Judaism, we have sayings like, Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shall return, and, and being created from the earth by God. So even those two diver, you know, highly divergent societies actually have a common belief in their origins. But the very fact that they seek their origins tells you that as human beings, we want to know, where did we come from? How did we get here? 
We want those answers so that we can use that sense of purpose for the next common tenet. All societies, all cultures, all humans, I believe that are mentally functioning correctly, look to the future. Where are we going? Where am I going? That's what people want to know. Where, so what's going to happen next? A big part of why people listen to this show is I have a pretty good track record of saying, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you can do about it. Well, if you didn't give a damn what was going to happen next, you wouldn't care. So it's those ten things. Again, survival, creating security, adaptation, questioning things and gaining knowledge, being part of families, belonging to communities, innovation for profit, which is simply, again, to gain from activity. To have a sense of purpose, to understand the past, and to look into the future. These things bind human beings in all space-time relationships. From the most primitive to the most advanced societies ever known. Those ten things are part of it. And you might think, well, how does this apply to shifts? Well, if we're going to deal with shifts, then we have to use the, the innate components of who and what we are to deal with them. You know, the concept of modern survivalism is based on material things like planning, emergency supply, storing food, developing skills, and many other things we physically do. But it's even more about how to think and solve problems, understand your world, adapt to change, manage to thrive as families and communities in spite of a shifting world. That's the big picture that we're taking a look at today. And they're the more important things because... Anything you can physically put away can be destroyed. Anything you gain can be lost. But your ability to adapt and overcome, your ability to think and analyze, to be critical thinkers, all of those things are things that unless you're mentally damaged, at which point you have much larger problems, or you're physically dead, in which case your problems are over, you retain that. That's the one thing that you really can't take from a person. And Back to the prison system, you can look at the technologies developed in prison cells to show you that it's impossible to take away the human ability to innovate and to adapt. We'll look at many of the coming shifts in our society today that indeed are unique to our time, yet we're going to view these shifts in the lens of modern survivalism and ask how our universal human nature can aid us in adjusting to those shifts and even profiting from them. So I want to just actually quickly hit some of the shifts that we are concerned with or looking at or expecting or looking at with anticipation in some situations and spend most of the time on what we can do to profit and adapt from these shifts. So one is government growth and intrusion. Um, government growth is like a disease to me. Uh, I put out a story today about a guy in Salt Lake City who has his own van parked in his own driveway Uh, but it's not licensed because he's not using it because it's broken down, so he doesn't have tags on it. And he just sits in his driveway. And the city of Salt Lake wants to fine him $14,000 and some change. And people are irate, you know, why are they doing this to him? And the question they should be asking is, why does the government have the power to do that in the first place? How stupid are we to, that we've given them this problem? Why don't we immediately tell them, you need to change this law or all of you are out in the next election? But we won't even ask that question. Because we've actually, instead of adapting to government growth, which means figuring out ways around it and how to deal with it, we've actually accepted it. Notice acceptance wasn't one of the things that makes us universally human. Acceptance is complacentness. Acceptance has value only in the world of the inevitable. 
It's one of the stages of grieving. You got a terminal disease. You're not going to make it. You know you're going to die. You got six months to live. At some point, you accept. But when we accept, then we just ride along like the leaf in the breeze. We can't accept government growth and intrusion. We have to fight back. But as you'll learn today, we can't necessarily fight back with voting anymore. We've given the state that power, and no matter who's there, in general, a state will use any and all power that you give onto it. In fact, any tyrant will, whether it be a bureaucratic organization like a state or an individual monarch like a king. The problem is that the power exists. And then the intrusion because of that power. So you know, there's a lot of technological intrusion, people monitoring everything you do online, electronic dossiers being built on every American, and that is happening, and that is a problem. But the intrusion into somebody's private property to tell them they can't have a vehicle parked there unless it has a tag on it from the state, and they will be threatened with the threat of violence at the point of a gun and extorted for their money is an example of government intrusion. People trying to start suburban farms and not being able to is government intrusion. Right? And government intrusion takes on many forms. We always think about the, 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 the big state, the federal state, the small state, the individual state, California, Oregon, Texas, Florida, those states. And then we also do acknowledge the existence of government in the form of, let's say, counties and cities and towns. But we often overlook look one of the most insidious forms of government that we have applied to ourselves and the most intrusive form of governments we've applied to ourselves are homeowners associations. If you think a homeowner's association is something that's designed to preserve the value of a community, economic value, to preserve, preserve property rights, you're wrong. That's, the, that's how you sell it. But what it really is is another layer of government. It's for the person that goes, you know what, I just I don't have enough intrusion and restriction in my life. I don't have enough control over the lives of others. Washington, D.C., and I'll use my own uh, chain as an example. Washington, D.C., the state of Texas... And all the regulatory authorities that exist within the two of those is not enough. The county of Tarrant is not enough. And if I live further south from here, the city of Fort Worth is not enough. I need more government. So one of the reasons we have the government growth and intrusion is the American people and the people of the first world in general have become so dumbed down and so dependent upon somebody else providing their needs and telling them what their purpose is that they feel they need more of it. They're literally addicted to control. That's the big problem here, that, that we live in a world where we even think it's okay that government has most of the power that it does. Yesterday we talked about a lady that had to go to federal court against the state of Texas because they wanted her to spend thousands of dollars and thousands of hours to be able to braid hair and teach other people how to do it. We should not be angry that the state is exerting that power. We should be upset that the state has that power. And it's in every state. The cosmetology world is like that. And there's millions of other op, you know, things like that. Constant trade. These are trade guilds is what they are. They are designed to prevent competition. That, it's not just so the state can have money. It's that people that make money from the activity want to limit access to it. That's what guilds do. They create limitations, right? They control and stabilize situations. We go in permaculture and we want to put a plant guild in. We look like, act like it's a good thing and it is. But why are we doing it? To control. We put in one particular plant that covers the ground. Why? To suppress weeds. 
So when we take gilding and we put it into trades, we actually restrict innovation. We restrict improvement. And then we take the power of government to enforce the will of the guild. And then pretty soon the people within the guild lose the power because they've given it over to the government. And then the government expands it and determines to do what? To profit with it. Because why? Because profit's universal. And, and this is the, the, the intrusion of government. And more and more is coming. They will track your vehicle and everywhere you go. They will control you at the absolute level to which you allow them to control you. And to the level that society as a whole, as a majority, allows to happen. The next, automation and job elimination. You know, we've been through this before, but this time is somewhat different, and there, there's reasons. Um, you know, people say, well, it's always the same. It's not that big a deal. You look back in society, and there used to be, you used to have a great job if you were an elevator operator. And uh, then they made elevators to where anybody could use them, and the elevator operator lost his job. But for every elevator operator that lost their job, there were jobs making elevators, and there were all these other jobs that came about as people were freed up from this need to have somebody push a button for them. And you could say the thing about telephone operators. You could say the same thing about the milkman. The milkman was an intrinsic part of American society and actually stayed around far longer than he ever needed to, just based on some nostalgia. But in the end, once we had refrigeration and, and, and mechanical transportation in the form of automobiles, trucks, cars, and trains, the milkman was no longer necessary, right? Especially when we added to that the ability to stabilize milk through pasteurization, which I'm not actually a fan of, but those things, those technologies lined up together to put the milkman out of business. But for every milkman that lost his job, there were many new opportunities created. Well, the difference today is... The last remaining places where people without a tremendous amount of skill can work are being replaced by automation. So we're taking out the bottom tier, which is often the entry step, how people get into the career market. We're also in a point where the, the population's growth is leveling or declining. So you're having less people, but yet the total population is higher than it's ever been. So there's a larger number of people affected and less growth to create things with basal needs like construction, right? How much construction do we really need to do for a population that's not growing anymore? There's a lot of things compounding this issue. Another trend that we're seeing is cryptocurrencies. And everybody loves Bitcoin, but I think Bitcoin is the Lycos of search engines, right? <laughs> What's Lycos? Do you guys remember Lycos? It was a dog that fetched your information for you. And then came Google, and Google pretty much put Lycos to sleep, you know, like a dog at the end of his, his lifespan. I, I, I bet Lycos still exists, but it's, it's, it's no longer valid to anybody. I just looked it up. It's still there. In fact, it is the, according to Alexa, the 8600th most popular website in 8600 and some change. So that's a lot of people use Lycos. And they've evolved, and they do games and stuff like that, and weather. And but you can still search the web with Lycos. Uh, in fact, I'm going to search it right now for survival podcast and see if you were using Lycos instead of Google, would you find me? Yeah, you'd find the survival podcast and results that look strikingly a lot like Google. See, I don't think Bitcoin will go away, but I think the cryptocurrencies will evolve to better and better versions. Of, of cryptocurrency and some of the things that maybe weren't perfect the first time around, like the voyage around the Cape of Africa to India, will be refined and improved by further innovation.
uh, following the, the one of the common things that bond us together, adaptation and innovation and profit, right? These are things that bind human beings together. So I think that cryptocurrencies will be largely adopted by global government, uh, honestly, because one of the things they want is a cashless society. They want all transactions to be public. At the same time, though, the cryptocurrency world is a two-edged sword. And no matter what propaganda you've been fed about Bitcoin, if I want to send you Bitcoin, I can do it in a way that nobody anywhere could really figure out. And yes, if you put one super hacker on just me and you and, and said, figure it out, and we know it's those two guys, sooner or later they could figure it out. Yes. But you, you, you have to tie up that one guy for a very long time, and you have to kind of already know what's going on. There are ways to use Bitcoin where it is the most public of transactions, and there are the ways to do it where it is the most private of transactions. And just because there might be a way to maybe figure it out in some instances doesn't mean it's not really capable of anonymity. And what I mean by that is you and I could do business with a $5 bill. And that $5 bill could pass from me to you, and we could make it public. We could put it on YouTube and broadcast it across the world and say, I just bought apples from Tom. Or... I could buy apples from you in our backyard and no one needs to know and it's completely anonymous because it's cash. That doesn't mean there aren't ways to figure it out. I've got the apples, you've got the $5 bill. That bill's unique. It's got a serial number on it. Maybe somebody saw us do it, right? So this is what you call the, nir the nirvana fallacy because something's not absolutely perfect. It's not valid. Well, that, that's really the case with, with Bitcoin. It's, It's not far from being a perfect solution, but it's not a perfect solution. It can be made better, and I think it will. But I think what cryptocurrencies really do is they open up the opportunity for further innovation in ways that make it more anonymous or more public. I think we'll be running elections using cryptocurrency technologies. And I think we'll be enabling people to do business with each other across the planet with cryptocurrencies and to democratize money, and to exit the, the concept of being controlled by the state's money. It's going to take an evolution of thinking, though, but we're on the right track with it. It leads directly to the next thing that I, I see as a trend coming forward, virtual nations, which I've talked about before. For those that haven't heard those, what I'm, what I'm saying is with a virtual nation and using cryptocurrencies or any means of exchange we use in a digital format... We create what I call the new tribalism, uh, far beyond what Seth, what Seth Godin was talking about when he talked about the tribe effect. That's just, you know, getting people behind a brand or something like that. I think that today we have a complete new tribalism where people form communities with people they've never physically met, and a lot of bad talk goes around about that. Oh, this person has 800 friends on Facebook, but they don't really know any of them, and they have no real friends in life or what have you. But sometimes virtual connections are as strong as anything offline. And many times, virtual connections lead to offline connections. We have plenty of people in the Survival Podcast Forum that routinely meet, have a beer, go to a coffee shop, or involve families that get together and do things as a, as a larger unit, etc., that started their connections at the TSP Forum. And the same can be said of anything from very small things like the TSP Forum, which is small in the Internet world, to giant things like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. There's been real relationships formed through these platforms. And that means the relationships in, are intrinsically real, and tribalism is about commonality. 
a common sense of belief and purpose and desire and goal and function. So tribalism of the old world was kind of a necessary thing to provide that security and survival. So you had to conform to what your tribe did to a degree or you had to leave the tribe and either form or find a new tribe. And that was pretty daunting, let's say, a thousand years ago. Where were you going to go? Who might you run into who doesn't like you and without numbers to back you up? So there's a lot of conformity in old tribalism. But new tribalism is different. Through virtual nations and the virtual nation concept, any person can probably find at least a thousand people that they're 90% or more in sync with, which is far more commonality than most nations or cities or towns or tribes ever, ever had. It's the universality that's there. And it leads to a spirit of voluntary uh, exchange, of voluntarism, right? That, that's this, the, the, the word that's thrown around by people that think they know what anarchism is and do not, and by anarchists themselves, and by libertarians themselves, and by anarcho-libertarians, and this mishmash of minarchist to full anarchist with the belief that government is inherently evil, and that everything should happen by voluntary association. And the objection to this up till now, which has been quite valid, had been, well, how do you make that work? How do you have enough people that really want to do things with each other to make it work? And I think it's actually a straw man fallacy in of itself, but you can see how people would buy into that fallacy. But in today's world, where many things can be exchanged across borders with ones and zeros, it gets a lot easier to see that how at least some segment of your life could be completely voluntary with individuals who voluntarily choose to interact and associate with you, including many of the functions of government, like contract enforcement and conflict resolution, like marriages, like anything from the legal world standpoint can be done in a voluntary arbitrator manner with no involvement by the state whatsoever if all parties agree to it. The terms of those things, etc., All of those things can be voluntary today in the virtual nation concept, the new tribal concept. Uh, and one of the next ones is the trends in education, which also lends itself to virtual nations and tribalism as well, new tribalism. But education is so huge, it's its own thing. We educate our children by a wholly and fully outdated methodology today. There is no reason for the, for the countless numbers of schools and the trillions of dollars flushed down the toilet in our educational system today. There is no need for anywhere near the sheer number of teachers. There's certainly no need for anywhere near the sheer number of administrators. There's no need for the public education system that we have today at all the end infinity. I am sorry. It is outdated. It is outdated. It is outdated. Do I need to say it one more time? It is outdated. We live in a world where a child can learn more on an iPhone today than they will learn in a kindergarten classroom. In fact, they can learn more from an iPhone in a week than they'll probably learn in a kindergarten classroom in, a, in an entire school year. And yet we insist on spending tremendous amounts of money and resources to prop up a dying institution of education. Education will shift. This is why your president has proposed free college. You're trying to save a dying beast. And it is dying, and it will die, and it will go away. And right in sync with that one is ebooks and all digital means of inf information distribution is another huge trend. It'll never be stopped. People said when ebooks first started coming out, they'll never get rid of books. I just like the way a book feels. I like the way a book smells. There'll always be books, but there'll be less of them every year from now and out to infinity. 
less and less. Just like there's still some places you can get a record album, you know, old school vinyl, but there'll be less of them every year. Uh, there'll be always niches for things. And that's one of the adaptations that we can use in the future is understanding niches and technological blowback and nostalgic affiliation. But in the end, the, the ability to disseminate information digitally has radically transformed the world. And no, the sun isn't going to explode and eject the CME and turn off all electronics and we're going to go back to Little House on the Prairie. That's not going to happen. And even if it did, it would be less than a decade until we rebuilt electronics because we know how to do it now and we know that it's possible. And that's what people do. What is Once something is known to be possible, it is almost impossible to prevent people from doing it. That's something you really need to learn and accept. And you can't plan for the most unlikely things in the primary components of your planning. You have to plan that next year will be a lot like this year, only it will move forward and things will change. You, you, you can't have in your life, your primary plan is for a complete total shit at the fan collapse. Because it probably ain't going to happen in your lifetime. You can have contingencies in case it does, your last ditch contingencies. But you better build your life for today. And for these shifts, far more than, oh, it'll all be fine when the zombies in the, the march and the, uh, it rains, uh, cats and dogs and they have puppy kittens. Cause it's, it's, it's not a good way to live. All right. Um, and, and ebooks and digital information distribution change everything. I can talk to a hundred thousand people today and I do, but I could be talking to 10 million just as easily. I don't have to do a lot more I have to buy more space on a server and more bandwidth. I can scale to 10 mil an audience of 10 million like that if 10 million will pay attention to me. That changes everything. A way to get out some of the information that I used to would have been to put it on a cassette tape and mail it to people. I would have had to charge for it. Now I can distribute at no cost and let people that voluntarily want to purchase anything from me do so. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. It changes the world of music. It changes the world of academia. Why do we have, going back to education, why do we have students paying $300 for a textbook, going to a used bookstore and paying $250 for it, when we could digitize it like that? Why? To enrich a system that's dying, the education system, and the textbook scam is one of the biggest scams ever perpetrated on the American people. Right? I love when they say, those kids are using history textbooks from 10 years ago. Really? What's, what, what history are they? Are they studying current events? Or are they studying history? Because I think the same thing that happened in 1950 happened in 1950 in 1999, I'm just saying. Right? I think what happened in 1950 was the same from 1951 forward. Unless some revolutionary new thing was discovered, that book's probably still good. But if it was electronic, then we did have some updates where we could just diddly do update them, and then we could actually just send one signal that would update them on everybody's device everywhere if we wanted to. Or at least they could voluntarily have a system to do that and get updates. Was it free or do they pay for it? It's up to the person that builds the system and the people that are customers of the system now, isn't it? But this is the world we should be in, and we have... One of the things that I left out is those that profit from the way things are will always resist change or try to steer change to their own ends. And that's what's going on in education. That's what's going on in information distribution. The major networks of the world, the cable TV companies, all are shitting their pants right now. But yet they're trying to control the evolution of media. But it's like trying to control 
oh, I don't know, water with your hands. It just doesn't work. You might be able to hold on to a bit of it, but you can't really control it. Especially if the water you're trying to control exists in an ocean. And that's what this new world of, of digital distribution of information is. Where everybody has the ability to basically do the same thing the nightly news does if you have a YouTube channel and a smartphone. Just to put it in perspective for you. This is where we are. So what can we do to profit from and adapt to these shifts? First and foremost, I want you to do something for me. Accept the statement. Shit happens. Oh, I mean shift happens, right? Shift happens. If you go to today's episode and you look, you'll see a graphic that says just that. Shift happens. That these things are going to change. And you need to accept that they're going to change. You don't need to necessarily accept that you have to, to just take it laying down, so to speak. But you need to just accept right now that whatever you think is going to stay static probably won't. And that will allow you to adapt. That will allow you to create security. And until you accept that, you're going to have a lot of problems. And shifts always move towards a forward momentum. We're not going to regress technologically in this world. We're not going to. It's not going to happen. I know some of you are just can't believe that. You're doomsday prepper type preppers and the world has to end. This all has to explode. The economy will go broke, whatever. All of these things, every time societies fall apart, rebuilding begins immediately. Every time. You know, it's just a fundamental reality of human beings. If you take a whole bunch of people and drop them off on an island and come back 10 years later, you end up with Australia. right? You know, with doctors and school teachers and everything else. Because people figure out how to adapt. If there's no one there to do it for them, then they start to do it for themselves. So shift happens. And then I want to tell you something that's also necessary. If you're going to design a lifestyle that's meaningful, that takes care of people, that looks after your family and your community, that has purpose, that has profit. For those things to happen and happen in abundance, you have to be happy. It is absolutely imperative that you discover how you can be happy for yourself. And I want to ask you a question today. What would you do if God spoke directly to you? Let's say your name is Tom. And, and, and God said, Tom, this is God. And after you freaked out and looked around, you convinced yourself this really was God talking to you. And he said, Tom, I command one thing of you, to be happy. What would you do? And I'd like to read for, for, for you a little excerpt from a book called Illusions, Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah by Richard Bach, where I got this concept from. And the master said unto them, if a man told God that he wanted most of all to help the suffering world, no matter the price for himself, And God answered and told him what he must do. Should the man do as he is told? Of course, master, cried the many. It should be a pleasure for him to suffer the tortures of hell itself, should God ask it. No matter those tortures, no matter how difficult the task, asked the master. The crowd responded, honor to be hanged, glory to be nailed to a tree and burned, if so be that God has asked, they said. And what would you do, the master said unto the multitude, if God spoke directly to your face and said, I command that you be happy in the world as long as you live, what would you do then? And the multitude was silent, not a voice, 
Not a sound was heard upon the hillsides, across the valleys, where they stood. They had no answer. And I find that when I ask this question for people, they try to just, like, use a fallacy to point out that it's evil to care about your own happiness and you should be doing things for others, which is a lie that's been sold to you. And if you actually want to deal with all of these shifts in society and be able to adapt to, fight back where necessary, and profit from them, you have to accept that it's not wrong to be happy. It's not wrong to want to be happy, and it's not wrong to see to your happiness is a fundamental building block in your life. It's not. You can't be a good father if you're miserable. So you have to be happy first to be a good father. You can't be a good husband if you hate yourself. We've been taught that the love yourself is wrong. This is nonsense. You have to love yourself. Now, there's a difference you know, between a basic love of yourself which is healthy and necessary to be a happy and functioning person, and narcissism. And the reality is most narcissists hate themselves. Do you understand that? You, you look at society today and you see all this stuff with, with girls doing selfies of stupidity and all this crap and people seem to be all focused on themselves and, and you think, see, that's what just worrying about your own happiness leads to. No, those people are miserable. They're not happy. They have no sense of purpose. They don't know what they're doing. And they're not happy. They may have moments of happiness, but in the totality of their lives, they're miserable human beings glorifying themselves to try to feel better about themselves. That's what, that's, that's what that really is. That's not what loving yourself, that's not what seeing to your own happiness means. That's narcissism. That's actual self-loathing and self-hatred and no sense of purpose. So those two things first, before I get into any of the mechanics, you have to accept that change is coming and that it's your duty to be happy. It's your duty to find your happiness because anything that you tell me that's meaningful in the world that a person should be doing, I will show you how they would do that better if they were happy and in some cases how they can never do it if they're not happy. That doesn't mean you're never sad. That doesn't mean you're never angry. It doesn't mean you, ever, you never go through something that would cause you to suffer something we would call misery. But in general, you're happy with your life. You're happy with your lifestyle. You're happy with your choices. You're happy with yourself. You're happy with your activities. You're happy with the people around you. Only in that state can you be a good father. Think about times when you were a child that you really enjoyed being with your parents, that you really learned from them, that you really felt cared for, that you really felt provided for. And then think about times when they were, one reason or another, miserable. And you might say, well, even though he was miserable, he went to work and provided a home for me, but how did it make you feel when your dad was miserable in front of you? And don't you think your relationship might have been better if he had found a way to be happy? So, I am imploring you today to ask yourself if it was so blunt that God himself commanded you to be happy, what would you do? And I'm going to tell you to go do that. And no, the world will not evolve into chaos if we do that. And another part of the book that I read the excerpt from, someone asks the character, what do you think would happen if everybody did what you did? And he said, I think we would have the most happy planet in the universe. And I tend to agree. You don't have to agree, but man, if you want to do the things that I'm talking about today, 
You got to find a way to be happy. Next is take from that which is good and make it your own. In all these shifts and innovations, we have a tendency to focus on the negative. There's a lot of positive. And just as, you know, Bruce Lee talked about with martial arts and Jeet Kune Do, he took the best for himself from all the different disciplines he studied and combined them to make something for himself. And he didn't say that his students should do exactly what he had done and that they should use the same things. He said, you should emulate me. Study everything. Take which is good from it and make it your own. And that's what we need to do. That's the martial way to deal with the shifts in society. Just as when you use martial arts property, properly, you can actually use the strength of an opponent against the opponent you, to turn his own strength against them. The harder they come, the harder they get hit. And, that's, and that is by taking that which is good. There's energy here. It means me hard, but the energy itself is not bad. I just need to change its direction. And that's how we have to look at these shifts in society. What from them is good? How can we adapt them into our own lives? And we also have to, right now, while we still can, establish beachheads of liberty. Based, and I say based on your personal passion. So to me, it was finding a place like I live in. No HOAs, out in the county as we call it down here, limited regulations, and put in my small farm. And it's much harder for you to make me go away when I got here before you told me I couldn't be than it is to prevent me from building in a place you already say I'm not allowed to. But a lot of you don't want to own a farm. Homeschooling is another example of a beachhead of liberty. The more homeschool parents, the harder it is for the state to wage a war on homeschool parents. Second Amendment, firearms ownership. The more gun owners, the harder it is to take away gun rights. See, when you own a gun and they start talking about taking it away, it means something to you because you realize it's your property. So beachheads of liberty are about maximum participation in everything that we can still do for ourselves, but with a sense of direction and clarity and purpose and uh, uh, built around the idea of being happy. Some of you, if you had a little farm like I do, right, a little three-acre farmstead with ducks and chickens and geese and all, it would make you miserable. You don't want to do the work, or you don't. Have, that's not your goal, so you shouldn't do it. Some of you really would be happy with a cool, full-on permacultured backyard. I think almost everybody would if they actually understood it, but some of you don't really want that. Don't do that. But find the things that you most want to do, and you'll probably find you're prevented in some way in your life now from doing some of them. Adapt to the situation. Innovate for the purpose of profit, gain, which is sometimes the gaining of happiness or sense of purpose in your life, and figure out how to do them. Figure out where to do them. Figure out how to structure them. Figure out how to make them defensible. Figure out how to make them not just defensible, but in some ways incapable of even being attacked. More on that as we get toward the end. But we've got to create beachheads of liberty. We've got to create permaculture farms. That's, that's, but that's for me, right? We've got to create things like the Free State Project in New Hampshire. We need one of those in every state. The whole idea that we'll just get enough people to move there to change things, I think even the Free State Project might be coming to the realization that that's not really what it's all about. It's about getting enough people active for the purpose of greater liberty that actually matters. They've done more, I think, without anywhere near the numbers they thought they needed to get done up there already. 
They've gotten a lot of things done. They've gotten a lot of laws repealed. They've opened up a lot of liberty that wasn't there before they got there. With a couple thousand people. Because it's a beachhead of liberty. And we need as many of those as we can. If you think it's wrong that somebody's prevented from doing something, you go figure out how to do it and go do it better. And do it in a way where you can continue to do it and demonstrate to others how it can be done. Next, you have to create your own opportunities. The world of expecting to have a job is dead. If you want a job in the future, you have to understand, and I'm not saying it can't be done, but I'm going to tell you you have to accept something. You want something that is decreasing in number while the desire for it is increasing at the same time. Companies are doing everything they can to eliminate jobs. If I go into business and create a new company, that may create jobs, but the truth is I want to create as few jobs as possible relative to the output of the company. That's what we call efficiency. And whether you want to accept this or not, the truth is to an employer, you are a pain in the ass. No matter how valuable you are, you're a pain in the ass. And you know why? Because no one cares as much about you as you, and that means no one cares about me as much as me. And you might think, well, that's a totally different thing. And we'll get to where that matters differently. But here, the way it matters is you will never care about my company as much as I do. I don't care if you're a dyed-in-the-wall company, man. You will never care about the wellness and the development and the, and the, the, the sustainability, the profitability, the efficiency, the growth. You will never care as much as I do. You might be happy when things go well for the company as long as things go well for you but you will never work as hard to make that company a success as I will you won't and the rare employees that do always end up figuring out hey I could be doing this for me and good employers are happy for them when they do good employers are like I wish you the best in your endeavors and they're sincere with it they're not just saying it because that's what you're supposed to say and that's That's the reality we live in today. If you want a job, you want something that's declining in number while the number of people seeking it is going up. And the way that you acquire it is changing while everybody's still doing it the same old way. Go to school, get good grades, go to college, get a degree, get an entry-level position, Get some experience and recommendations and then seek higher level employment and then build a career. <laughs> wrong, 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 wrong. I'm not saying it doesn't work at all anymore, but it sure don't work like it used to. And now we're cramming people into that funnel at a higher number than ever. This plan to give away two years of free community college, some version of it will happen. You watch. This is a very smart political play by a lame duck president. He's setting the stage for, well, we tried to give you free college, but the other side wouldn't let us. And the other side's going to have to say, well, there's a way to do this, but it's, it's politics and games, like always. But whatever they do will further devalue that which they tell you you need. So you have to start creating your own opportunities. This isn't just about creating your own companies or your own entrepreneurial opportunities, but if you're going to be an employee, you got to create opportunities as an employee. you got to create opportunities to find a better job. you got to walk across the street if there's a 20% raise in it. You have to. You can't have loyalty to a company that doesn't have loyalty to you. This is a different world we live in. You have to see yourself. I don't care what it says on your, your tax form. You have to see yourself as a self-employed contractor. 
And all the things you think your employer pays for, you better realize right now, your employer doesn't pay for it. You do. If I hire you and I have to provide health insurance for you, I factor that into the wage that I can pay you. It's your money, and I've just been forced to spend it a certain way. No employer hires anybody to do a job for long if that person isn't profitable to the company or key to the company's operations. So you might have a few positions in a company that are not directly profitable, but without them, all the other profit centers couldn't function, which actually makes them internally profitable. But one way or another, every company sooner or later is forced into a position where they have to evaluate everybody that works for them. Is this person critical to the success of the company? Do they make us money? Could we make more with somebody else? And when the answer is they're not critical or we can make more with somebody else, you are fired. Sometimes they call it laid off. Sometimes they call it helping you into a new opportunity. They might soften the blow a little bit. Sometimes it comes a little severance package. But in the end, the loyalty of a company is to the company itself. It's called fiduciary responsibility. And it's actually the law of the land. And if you don't understand that, then you're walking wide-eyed and stupid into a world full of predators. Your loyalty in your career must be to yourself and to your family, not to your employer. That doesn't mean that you're a bad employee. That doesn't mean you screw your employer over. That just means when you think about it, what are my levels of priorities, me, because without me, all the things I want to do for my family and my community don't happen, then family, then community, then company. And those other three things come first. And that means when you can better yourself by going elsewhere, you do it. And you do it knee-jerk and stupid. You analyze critically everything you do. But you have to create your own opportunities. This means when you're looking for a job, this means you stop scanning the want ads and you start evaluating companies. You start looking for their needs. You start figuring out which company can I best fill a need. And you go sell that company on your ability to fill that need. And you might get a company to make a job where there wasn't one because they never even thought that that could work. And all you have to do to get me to hire you as an employer, the only thing you have to do to get me to create a position that didn't even exist yesterday is make me believe that if I do that, by the end of the year, you're going to be making me money. There's an ROI on you. If you can bring me $200,000 a year of profit, and you want $150,000 to do it, if I believe it, you just got a $150,000 job. I'll take $50,000 for your efforts. I'm fine with that. And I'll provide you the structure. Now, back into this understanding. That doesn't mean I'm going to give you a $150,000 paycheck. That means I'll spend $150,000 on you to profit $50,000 on you. That means that it's your pay. It's my half of your Social Security. It's your benefits. It's your health care. It's the light over your desk. It's the desk itself. It's the space you occupy. It's your burden labor cost to me. What is your total cost? But if you can tell me and show me and make me believe and then do it, I will make you more than I will cost you. You get a job like that. We don't think that way in society at all. We, we, that's not how we think anymore. We think they should give me a job because I'm a good hard worker and I'm loyal and I can learn to do anything. I don't give a shit and neither does anybody else hiring you about any of that. 
That's all a bunch of bullshit they told you in school. And it's 100% stinky, steaming, smelly bullshit. And it's less true today, but it was never true. Why don't they teach you this? Because it doesn't breed conformity. And most of them teaching you don't know it. They're teachers. They were hired into a position where they don't have to be profitable because the money that they're paid was taken from somebody else by force. That doesn't mean you're a bad person if you're a teacher, but the flat reality is if you're a school teacher, you don't earn a dime that's given to you voluntarily by your customer. Your customer is the kid or the young adult sitting in front of you and their parents. Their money is taken without their consent and spent in ways they don't want to create the system that you work in. So you can't possibly understand the creation of opportunity in a free market if you've only worked as that type of employee. That's why we have teachers teaching the mindset of getting a job as a teacher to people that are never going to be teachers. Only in government do positions exist solely to be filled. In the real world, in the free market, there's always a customer that demands delivery of a product. And if it's not sufficient, the customer goes elsewhere. This is the free market. This is the piracy of silver to China. Because that was the actual market. And you can't hide it. You can't make it go away. And the reason they can't teach your children this in school, America, is because they don't know it. They're not hiding it from them. Now, the system's set up by people that understand this, that want it hidden from them, because they are a part of their business. See, if I'm an oligarch, if I'm a banker, if I'm anybody that makes its living off the parasitism of society by selling money to people in the form of debt or by making drugs to medicate people, I want conformists for my marketplace. And if I'm a banker, then the school system manufactures my future business. They bring me a person who's convinced they need my money so that they can get more education, even though the current education hasn't prepared them for what the real world is all about. And then they're going to borrow money from me, and I'm going to own a piece of them for the rest of their life in the form of interest on their labor. That's why they don't teach you this, because they can't, and there's no incentive for them to do so. But this is how you survive economically in the world today. You create your own opportunities. You evaluate situations. You determine where you have the highest value. You improve your ability through education to deliver on that value along with experience. And you sell that to whoever you want money from. Whether it's in business for yourself or working for someone as an employee. And if you don't do that, you're going to be second rate your entire life and in income. That doesn't mean you can't build a really happy life that way, honestly. But you'll never have what you could. Remember, the first commandment I gave you is to figure out how to be happy for yourself. Um, the next thing is, you can profit from nostalgic blowback, is what I call it. As we enter a world where everything's automated, handmade, locally produced, high quality, unique, will become more and more at a premium. So craftsmen, artisans, local producers of anything, from from physical product to food, can profit from that nostalgic blowback. You're going to operate in a niche, but that's a great place to be, especially if you can find a niche bigger than you can possibly serve and small enough that the people running the main show don't really care. 
I don't have time to jack around with this guy selling eggs. He's not, he's not impacting the bottom line of Eglin's vest. But yet, I can't get enough ducks to provide enough eggs to the people that want to buy them from me. That's a great niche. A person like Patrick Rorman that's making handmade knives of the quality that used to be expected from American industry that doesn't exist anymore. You know, Buck Knives is not going to get in a tizzy over what Patrick's doing. In fact, Patrick may find an opportunity with a company like Buck someday, the way that Ron Hood did with the hoodlum knife that's now manufactured by Buck. Who knows? But in the end, there's always that market for that true artisan that can produce something that's of a quality and a uniqueness you can't get. So on creating your own opportunities, also understand how to profit from nostalgic blowback. And the other thing would be to profit from people that can't quite adapt fast enough. If you understand the good that you take, we talked about earlier, better than those around you, and you can help them partake of it too, that also creates opportunity. The other thing you have to do is you have to focus only on what you can influence. There is no time left anymore in this world to spend energy and emotion on things that you cannot change. If you focus on only what you can change, you find yourself to be highly, highly effective. So, do I like the fact that Monsanto's growing genetically modified corn and soy and spraying it with toxins and feeding it to people? I don't like it. Does it concern me? Yes. Can I do anything about it directly? If I walked around with a sign every day that said Monsanto sucks, would it really do anything? No. What I can do is reach the audience I have with a message about what it really is all about, tell you there's another choice, and leave you with your own decision. And out of 100,000 people a day listening, some people will do something, and therefore it's something I can influence. You can tell your best friend, you can tell your father, you can tell your cousin, you can tell your uncle, and that's under your sphere of influence, but once the message is delivered, if you keep pushing, you actually make it less likely that they'll ever receive it. You plant the seed and you walk away. And that's the minor side of what you can influence. The major side of what you can influence is if you don't like Monsanto, don't buy products that come from their system and grow your own and find your own. If you don't like that Walmart has their employees work on Thanksgiving Day, don't shop at Walmart. Don't rant and rave about it, post memes on Facebook and bitch and cry and holler and moan, especially if you work there. And it's not fair that you have to work on Thanksgiving. Don't work for Walmart. Well, you understand I need a job. Well, here's how I feel about people that say the only reason I work for Walmart is the only job I can find. Then at this point in your life, in your career, the only value that you offer a, a company is sufficient to be hired by Walmart. Well, Costco does whatever. Okay, then go work for Costco. They won't hire me. Okay, then make yourself good enough that they will. Because that's what you get. I hear fast food workers, you know, bitch about, well, you know, Chick-fil-A teaches, treats their employees well. Have, have you been to a Chick-fil-A? I have. I mean, it's still mass-produced food, but it's pretty good quality. But have, can you compare for me the average McDonald's to the average Chick-fil-A in how well run it is, how efficient it is, the quality of not just the food, but the service? Chick-fil-A blows McDonald's out of the water. Why? Because they treat their employees better. They pay their employees better. 
They offer them better benefits. They offer them greater opportunity. And because of that, they can be selective in who they hire, and they hire better people. I work for McDonald's and I don't suck. You might work for McDonald's and you might not suck, and that probably means you could get a better job if you tried. Maybe you can't this second, but if you actually create opportunities for yourself, you bet you can. This is the world we live in. And we have to focus on what we can influence. And what we can influence is not what Walmart does, but how we relate to Walmart. Not what McDonald's does, but how we relate to McDonald's. Not what Monsanto does, but how we relate to Monsanto. Not what the government does, but how we relate to the government. What we choose to accept. Not what the media says, but whether we choose to believe it or even listen to it or not. That's what we control, so that's what we have to focus on. The next thing is we have to be lifelong learners, lifelong students. Education is the most important thing in the world. It really is, and it has nothing to do with school. We cannot, we can no longer continue to confuse school with education. School's a building, school's a place. School's a place where people may or may not get educated, but it's not in of itself education. There are many ways to learn that don't involve schools, and there are many schools in of themselves, and what they look like, and what they do, and how they operate. If I have a studio where I teach young children martial arts, it's every bit as much a school as a school run by the state of Texas that they call the public education system. I'm just teaching something different. And you know what? Those students might learn more about life from me than they do from a textbook written by a bureaucrat. I'm just saying. The truth is there has never been a time in the history of the world where it was easier to learn than it is today. From YouTube to forums uh, to just general availability of information. Do, do you know that it's been years now since they printed an encyclopedia? The encyclopedia that was once the cornerstone of information in the world is now fundamentally obsolete. Now, online encyclopedias of many kinds exist. I would say some forums are, in effect, an encyclopedia of information, organized in a similar way, not necessarily alphabetically, but subjectively. I would say the TSP forum and the TSP Wikipedia are encyclopedias of prepper sustainability knowledge. Wikipedia is a perfect example of an online encyclopedia that's probably better than it ever could be if it was put out by a single publisher. But I don't care what you want to do. If you want to learn advanced physics and the mathematics that go with it, there's places that will teach it to you for free now. If you want to learn how to rebuild a carburetor, there are places that will teach it to you for free now. If you want to learn how to cast aluminum, we just had some stuff on the blog about that right before I came back from vacation, there's places you can learn how to do that at no cost. That used to be a closely guarded secret. And there's better information sometimes that you can purchase. So you might be able to learn a lot for free, but if you want it concisely, well-organized with support, someone to answer your question, someone to help you make use of it, someone to sign off on your competency, then you might have to pay for it. You can pay a hell of a lot less to learn a hell of a lot more, a hell of a lot faster with a lot less extraneous information that used to exist. We should be teaching ourselves something new every day. I fundamentally believe if you don't learn something every day, you don't learn at least a couple things every day. You're squandering the opportunity that exists today. And many people that were alive just 50 years ago 
would walk up to you if they could come back, look at your squandering, and punch you square in the face, and you'd probably deserve it if you're not learning something new every day in a world where it's so easy to, because it's so valuable. You know, they say an education is priceless, and that's true. Unfortunately, they use it to sell degrees. Degrees are not priceless. We can put a price on them, and we can even determine with quite a bit of relevancy based on the skill, the grade point average, the usefulness of the degree, the individual, the institution that exists, and what the ROI is, if any, including if it's negative. Schooling's not priceless. Degrees aren't priceless. Diplomas aren't priceless. Education is priceless. But it's how we apply the education that makes it priceless. And many times that has a direct correlation how, how and why we acquire the education. Do you want to learn something or do you have to learn something? There's a few things that we have to learn. We have to learn how to read and speak. If we don't learn those, then other learning becomes impossible. We have to learn things like, hey, if you step off the edge of that thing, you fall to your death or we die and we don't meet that number one criteria of survival. We have to learn basic interactions with people. But there's not actually, when you look at the totality of what's taught in the world, voluntarily and involuntarily taught, there's not that much that we have to learn. Because as a society, we figured out how to do that without a modern education system long ago or we wouldn't be here. So in the end, people work this stuff out just through social interaction, most of it, right? Touch something hot, it burns you, you don't do that again, okay? Better ways to learn that, but in the end, that will work. There's a very small amount of things that we have to learn to survive or to function. Everything else falls into the, the realm of either we want to learn it or we're forced to learn it because someone decided we needed to. In some instances, some of that forcing may not be terrible, Learning your alphabet and how to, how to read might be an example of something you have to do that you don't really have to do. You won't die without it, but it's much better that you do than you don't. But once we get past that, most of the stuff we force people to learn, they don't need it. It's not necessary. What if we actually taught people, hey, why don't you figure out what you want to learn and learn that? How much more motivated are people to do what they want to do instead of what they have to do? When you see someone learning something they want to learn, it almost becomes addictive. You see them switch on with an energy, and they begin to ask more questions, to dig deeper, to go to another level, to move faster than their teachers. That's how you know if, you, if you're a gifted teacher. The quicker you can take your student to a level where they don't need you, the better you are. But our entire system of education has been built around conditioning the student to obey, listen to, and move at the speed of the teacher. It was only when I discovered permaculture that I found teachers that were excited that their students were doing more than them faster than they could. Jeff Lawton, I think, is one of the greatest teachers in permaculture. But one of the very first times I ever heard him speak in, in training, he said, my students move faster than me. I can't wait to see how fast their students move. I had never heard that. Not even, you know, you look at something like martial arts. I think it's a much better schooling mentality than uh, a public school. Because, first of all, it's voluntary. You're not forced to take martial arts. Not for very long, anyway. A teacher will get tired of you and get rid of you, even if your parents are trying to make you go if you don't really want to be there. So it is voluntary. But in the end, the teacher in martial arts always wants to be superior to the student in ability. And they'll often demonstrate their superiority. And in just about every aspect, whether it's how to make a sword, uh, the teacher wants to be the master. 
It was only when I discovered permaculture that was led by ethics and a directive of being responsible for ourselves and our children that I discovered teachers that literally wanted their students to be better than them as soon as possible. Teachers that wanted to be obsoleted as soon as possible. And that's when I figured out what real education was. I want to keep bringing you information so that you can pick and choose what you want to take from of it. But I want you to be better at me in almost everything that I talk about that you want to be better at. So there'll be things that I do that you just don't want to do. Well, I'll probably be better at those things for the rest of my life. But the things you really gravitate towards, I want you to become better at them than me as fast as possible. I want you to choose to come get new ways of seeing things and information for me, not to need it, not to be dependent. And our entire society is built on the exact opposite of that. No financial advisor wants to teach you how to manage your money well enough that sooner or later you go, thanks, I got it, goodbye. No marketing firm wants to empower a company's marketing to such a level that they're no longer necessary. No teacher wants to feel halfway through the, the, the year that the student now knows more than they do. And they really hate it when that's the case. I, I can tell you, I know it might sound arrogant, but there were teachers that I had that I read the freaking textbook the first week and I felt I knew more about the subject than they did. And they don't like that. They want conformity because they it's not their fault. I think most people, if they were given true liberty, once they got over the caged bird syndrome, if teaching is something they're actually passionate about, if they could bring a student in to learn piano and teach them basic course, and they were just an okay piano teacher, just okay, but they had a gift for instilling the desire And that any student that came in with a natural ability could walk out the door two days later and play better than them, they would be ecstatic. They'd want as many students like that as they could get. And they'd have them. People would flock. Even though this person's not the greatest pianist, they create great pianists. And I'm seeing in our, our, our youth even this mindset start to happen. My nephew is a very gifted football player. Specifically, in a very specialized position that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it really is a specialized position. Long snapping. Long snapper is the guy that snaps the ball to the kicker, for one instance of where the long snapper comes in, and this has to be right. When you're kicking a 20-yard field goal, you got to get those three points. And it's not just the kicker. big part of it is the placeholder and the snapper, those three together. And you can't have a poor long snapper. Well, he's actually gotten several offers for scholarships to colleges already. And the one he's most excited about is the college, and it's a, it's a junior college. But they have an incredible track record of students that come out of their program going on to four-year universities and playing at that level of development, right? Of actually making the player better than the system by the time the player exits it. That's what he's excited about. That That's a forward-thinking young man. I'm very proud of him. And, and that's the type of way we need to think about coaching and teaching. In fact, I often think that we really maybe need to change the word teacher to coach. That we should be coaching people, not teaching people. Teaching infers that we give them the learning. I think learning is earned. I think that learning is something that the student does, not that the teacher does. 
And when we say I teach English, that means that I put the information into the individual. And while some level of programming a human being can be done, it's very limited. If we said I coach English, that would mean that I actually guide the student through the learning of English. Or I coach mathematics. Right? But we don't want that. That's not what society wants today. Well, it's what society's getting. And that's why you have to be a lifelong learner. I think you also have to question everything which causes you to react in any way. And the stronger the reaction, the more you have to question it. If you immediately get angry when you hear something, research it to see if it's even true before you, you, you repost it or get mad or go off in a tirade or say, I can't believe this or what have you. I can't tell you how many things I see come up on Facebook, a person's picture, something they said that's idiotic, and then I Google it and they never said it. Or a story of something that supposedly happened that makes you have a visceral reaction, and when you look it up, it never happened, or it didn't happen the way that it was presented. And as soon as you take that couple seconds to investigate it and realize that's not true, you don't care about it anymore. And therefore, it doesn't control your life anymore. And therefore, you move on. So you have to question anything. And the more visceral the reaction, the more you should question it. The more... If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And if something sounds too stupid to be true, it may not be true. There are some real stupid things people do and say. But most of what I've seen, that's the extreme, especially on the Internet, does not pass the sniff test. A five-second Google search. Just take the quote, type it in, hit submit before you hit share. I'm just saying. Start critically thinking. Um, and, and that's kind of where I want to go next. So when you start questioning everything that chooses you to react, require yourself to find logical answers to your own questions. Require that of yourself. Be your own coach, so to speak, in the learning process. So when you get angry about something and then you find out that the politician never said it or did it, but there's truth in there that it's, it's an exaggeration, but You know, there, there, there's something government's doing that it should not be doing. Require yourself to find out a logical answer of like things like, well, how come they can do that? Why are they able to do that? Why are people okay about that? What can be done about it? What can I do about it in my life to mitigate that if there's nothing that can be done at the macro level? What can I do at the micro level to mitigate the, 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 micro, the, the macro level? These are the questions you must ask of yourself. Stop letting other people tell you what your questions are. Turn the freaking news off. I've said this before, but the reality is the problem with the news isn't just the, the misinformation on the news. It's the very fact that they tell you that what they're talking about is what you should be concerned with. If you're actually concerned about something, you'll look into it. You don't need somebody to tell you what it is. You'll figure it out. If something monumentous actually happens, you'll know about it quick enough. You don't need the nightly news, CNN, or even online news sources to know about the news. It doesn't mean there's not interesting things there, but look for what you want to know about. Use a positive form of perception bias. Does no, Instead of perception bias meaning, ever, since I think they're out to get me, everything I see says they're out to get me, what do I want to know about? Therefore, I will perceive the information that's valuable because I will seek it out. And if you want to know how to make a better mousetrap, that's what you'll end up with. 
instead of being told no one wants a mousetrap. Just saying it. it. It really, I know some of these things seem overly simplified, but they're really not. And I think that the biggest thing we can do is warriors for liberty. And I really hope that everybody that listens to this show for any length of time becomes a warrior for liberty in your way, not the way that I would. You choose your own way to fight, but there, or your own actions in the fight, your own places to fight, your own battles. Choose your own battles. But we need to start fighting in the liberty movement from one of the greatest quotes of all time from the art of war. And it is actually a quote that's not actually talked about very much. I don't hear people talking about this one very much. To me, it is the most powerful, and it actually sums up the entire art of war in one quote. And this quote is, To fight and conquer in all your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. That is the way that you establish virtual nations. That is the way that you establish local food production. That is the way that you fight back in all of these things. That is the way you fight back with the right to keep and bear arms. You don't fight directly. You just get enough people to own a gun that when they try to restrict gun ownership, there's so many people that go, that's my gun. No, you can't do that. That it becomes impossible for the enemy to resist. With virtual nations, when I talked about their concept, I said, listen, when you start, if you start a virtual nation tomorrow, Libertas was the name I gave to a virtual nation, right? The day you start it, no one will give a shit. No matter how big your dreams are, no matter how well organized you look, no matter how well planned out things are, no one will care because everybody will think the same thing they thought about Bitcoin. This can't work. Okay? If you actually succeed in building a virtual nation to where there's a million people that are part of it, you become too large of a force to ignore. You're not malleable enough. There's no place to bomb or attack or invade. It can't be shut down. It's a living, breathing entity, an idea. You can't destroy an idea. So therefore, you get to a point where you can no longer be attacked. You have to be dealt with. You have to be negotiated with. You have to be accepted. It's the middle where you're in peril. It's as you start to get enough success to be on the radar of the enemy at a time when you're still weak enough to be attacked. What we need to do is move so swiftly in our battles for liberty, become so valued by those around us, by others in our communities and other communities, that they don't want you to go away. That when you are attacked... The response is so visceral by the people that are in power, to the people that are in power, by those whom which they want to control, that they fear losing control. If we do this, these people will go into open rebellion. We can't do this anymore. This is the way of the liberty warrior. To continue to chip away at the armor of the oligarchy. And to find the individual niche where your efforts can have the most impact. And to slowly tear down the walls of tyranny in such a way that the building collapses around you. And when the building collapses around you, the people who are in power go, we can't put that building back together. We didn't even know that there were that many people inside the building. And we figured if it collapsed, at least it would crush them. And it fell around them. 
And now they're there and they're building their own building. We got to go do something else. We can't mess with this. There's too much there, too fast, and there's other things we could be doing. You have to make them use their own choice about what they can influence. And then over time, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. This is the new revolution. This is the new way of society having revolutions. The old method of shooting each other doesn't work very well anymore. And your enemy's too powerful. You can listen to all the nostalgia you want to about ragtag rebels fighting back about the greatest empire in history, the British Empire, and the British Empire not being able to fight back. The reality is the British Empire, if they would have brought all to bear on the colonies, could have suppressed the revolution and could have won. And without the intervention of another nation, France, we would have never survived even what they threw at us. In the end, Britain made a calculation that it simply wasn't worth it. That the ideology of revolution was too strong and the cost of suppression was too great. And they had other things that were more beneficial to them as a nation, so they went and did those things instead. That's the real story of the American Revolution. It may not sound as heroic, but it's a hell of a lot smarter. And you know what it is above all other things? It's the truth. See, we don't teach historical truth in schools. We teach hist history tied to the current agenda. You often hear the bad guy in some kind of scenario say, it won't matter if we win because the victors write the history. Well, they're not wrong. Just because they're a bad guy doesn't mean they're wrong. It's another fallacy is not believing something simply due to its source. In fact, first person emailed me today that can tell me what fallacy that is, what the name of that fallacy is. Give you a free year of MSB. Right. But this is how we have to fight from now on. One time more, I'm going to read this quote as we close up today. To fight and conquer all in your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. If you want to fight for local food, buy local food. Grow local food. Produce local food. Tell people about local food. Get other people to buy local food. If you have enough local producers of food, that are doing so, serving enough people, shutting them down becomes all but impossible. The, the, the politicians are more concerned with keeping their jobs and staying in power than they are in always getting their way. Basically, politicians are spineless scum. 90% or more are spineless scum. You have to understand that. You understand your enemy, then you can defeat your enemy. And we have to choose the fight to choose the battle. Another concept of the art of war is we never actually enter a battle unless victory is certain. And that might mean, well, there's people that have to be fought, but we can choose the time and the, 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 the instance and the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? We can choose the time and the conditions of the battle so that they favor us versus the enemy. We don't just charge into a fight when we're not prepared for it. It's another lesson we can learn from history. One of, the, one of the smart things the United States did in the entry of both world wars was prepare for the war that was already raging and then enter it. That's what we did. We did not just say, oh shit, we're joining the war. Let's get our army and go over there and attack some stuff. In World War II, what made the U.S. capable of the intervention and the, the becoming the turning point that we were 
was that we were insulated by giant oceans and bombs weren't falling on us. And our friends were able to fight long enough and hold out long enough that we could actually get in an absolute prepared state and then go to war in that prepared state. The U.S. chose the timing and the circumstances that it entered into battle in the world wars. Now, yes, I am a believer that things like the sinking of the Lusitania and the bombing of Pearl Harbor were known in advance and used to lure the United States into war when the United States as a people did not have a taste for war. I believe that. It doesn't matter in the execution of the war. The apparatus was prepared and the timing was chosen. We didn't invade you know, on D-Day because somebody just threw a dart at a calendar and said, that's going to be the day. And we delayed and delayed and delayed until the conditions were best suited to give the operation the opportunity to succeed. So that even when a whole shitload of things went wrong, it still worked. Now, had we not done the preparation and we had not done the timing and all of those things had gone wrong, it would have failed. We didn't win because we wore the white hat. We won because we were more prepared and we chose the timing, the tactics of battle. And you can learn from these military battles, whether they're ancient battles in Greece or more recent battles of revolution in the colonial in the United States or much more recent battles in deserts and in the European continent. You can learn from all of them in the tactics that we use at this point and one is Fight the battle from a position where victory is assured. And if you say, well, the enemy seems too strong, then you have to figure out where the enemy is weak and choose your point of attack based on the weakness. You choose to attack based on your greatest strength and your enemy's greatest weakness. But if you never fight and you win, that is true excellence. Or another way to look at it is there's more than one way to fight. Fighting with physical aggression is the lowest form of battle. The highest form of battle is intellectual. That's what we need to adapt to these shifts. And do remember this here at the end. No one cares about you and yours as much as you care about you and yours. That's why I said all employees suck in the end to an employer. An employer that could eliminate every job would do it in a heartbeat. Now, there might be employers that really care about their people and want to take care of them and all, and I, I understand that. They become friends and family and what have you. And it's not like they just detest the concept of employees. But in the end, if you can have a company run by robots, it's a lot easier for you as an owner. It really is. You don't want a head count of 50,000 people. That's a lot of people's pain-in-the-ass problems to deal with. And that is because they care about themselves more than they care about you, but they should. It's not wrong. In fact, I advise you to do that. To put yourself before your company. If you're an employee anyway, you have to. Because your company's going to put the company before the employee. They have to. But what that means for you is that you need to take individual responsibility in your own life because no one gives a shit about your family the way you do. No government cares about your family as much as you do. No politician cares. If you really believe that a person's initial at the end of their name in government dictates whether they care about you more or not, you have been so misled, I don't even know what to say at this point. The only person that really cares about you, other than your immediate family and your immediate friends, is you. That's it. 
a person could die tomorrow and you could hear about it on the nightly news. It would be tragic. It was a mother with three children and she was killed in a car accident because some needless uh, thing occurred, like some drunk ran a stop sign. And you, you'll, you might even pause for a moment and weep for her, but you won't remember her two days later. Because it's more important that you take care of your family than worry about something that you can't change. At some point you find acceptance and you move on with your life. And if you didn't, there's a tragedy every second of every day, of every year, of every month. You wouldn't even function if you were so empathic that you deeply cared about every person you ever heard about. You'd never be able to get anything done. That's an intrinsic human trait. We have a self-preservation instinct. You say, well, what about acts of heroism, Jack? What about where one man lays his life down to save another person? It's noble, but those are situational. Those are situational. They're not long-term. And generally speaking, when someone gives their life in an act of heroism, most of the time, there was a chance for it to succeed where not only did they save a life, but they saved their own life at the same time. Very few people truly go on heroic suicide missions. The odds might be long against them, but there's at least a chance. Or they know that their action will save more than one life. There are people that will give up their life because they know, I'm going to save 20 people right now. And, and my life isn't worth the life of 20 people. Those are special, unique people that are capable of that type of sacrifice. Amazing people. But in the end, don't think that that's the average person. And certainly don't think that your government is that type of uh, entity. That just because somebody wears a certain uniform that they're going to save your life above their own. They might, but that's about the individual. Not their title or their uniform. The person that's willing to risk their life to save yours, that's a police officer, doesn't do it because they're a police officer. They do it because they're a person willing to risk their life to save yours. And if their job was gone, their title was gone, their badge was gone, their uniform was gone, and they saw you at risk and thought, by risking my life, I may very well save this person's life, will still do it. They don't do it because it's a job description. They do it because of who they are. And it's a very, again, it, 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 it's, I actually think that's actually pretty universal in human beings, that if I truly believe I can save you in some type of danger, and I truly believe there's any chance that I'm going to be able to pull it off. I'll take the calculated risk. And I have to make that calculated risk in a matter of seconds. I have to make a decision. So sometimes it might be more dangerous. Or I might accept more danger than I normally would. Because I'm moving on emotion. But in the methodical world where people plot things out in corporations and government, they don't give a shit about you as an individual. And it's very important that you understand that. And society as a whole... No matter how much their emotional buttons can be pushed to make them vote a certain way or accept a certain law, they don't give a shit about you as an individual. That's a great thing. Because that means as long as you're not interfering with their lives, they pretty much leave you alone. But it also means 100% of the responsibility for your happiness, your well-being, and the same for your family and your community falls on your back. Not the government. Not your employer. Not anybody else. Remember above all, folks... What you do matters. That's what you have to understand to deal with the coming shifts in society. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.